Melius Performance Podcast, a little bit of reggae there to kick off this episode today. I thought it was apt, seeing as we're joined by Dr. Brandon Marcello. Brandon is based in Florida in the US. Uh, we recorded this episode in early January. Uh, Brandon is a very interesting character. He has quite a mix of a background, starting out in theatre design originally, before ending up with a PhD in the area of sports performance. Brandon has worked at Stanford University and now runs his own consultancy business where he works with the military and elite athletes. This is a very interesting episode. I've known Brandon for a couple of years. Uh, we do some work together in our own sleep and technology. And uh, it was a real pleasure for me to spend some time with Brandon and really understand his background and um, some of the work that he's done. In this episode, we also discuss overtraining 
and why Brandon thinks overtraining actually does not exist. Hmm, quite controversial. Anyway, listen on and uh, you will find out more about that. As always, you can follow us at meliasconsulting.com.au. You can go there to listen to our past episodes of our podcast, look at our blogs. And uh, don't don't forget, you can subscribe to our newsletter as well. It comes out every two months this year. So we're going to be putting out a newsletter every two months. We're going to have two podcasts out a month roughly and one blog out every month as well. If there's any topics there you'd like us to cover, just send us a note and uh, we'll do our best to do it. Also, if you follow us on LinkedIn as well, putting up lots of scientific breakdowns, communications up there as well. So lots of free information. And um, yeah, always happy to help. Have a look at our website at some of the solutions we offer as well. More than happy to discuss how we might be able to support your business. Anyway, enough of the guff from me. On with the episode. This is Dr. Brandon Marcello. Welcome back to Melia's Performance Podcast. I like doing that countdown because it makes sure that I can still count backwards. That's a good start today, isn't it, Brandon, if you can count? Great start. Brandon, you're as old as me, or maybe, maybe even older. I'm not even sure. I don't know. It's hard to tell how old you are. How old are you, Brandon? Let's ask. I'm probably older. I'm old, probably older. Old, old enough to know better, too young to resist. <laughs> yes, my statistical knowledge started out with the count on Sesame Street. Do you know why? Here's a question for you, Brandon. You're a, you're a, you're a smart guy, as the guys would say. You got a PhD. Why did the count never go past 12? No. Do you ever know on Sesame Street? Everything was like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That was it. So it's nothing exists after twelve. Huh. Syllables, maybe. Music? I don't know. Most owners got something to do with learning edge. If you have the answer, please send twenty dollars to P.O. Box. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough messing around. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Brandon Marcello. Yeah, good to be here. Brandon, where are you joining us from today? Let the good viewers, listeners know where you are. I am in the United States. I am in Florida, the state of Florida here in the United States. The state of Florida. So how's things going? Sanity. <laughs> now, which side? Whereabouts in Florida are you? Because I had a friend that lived in Florida and he said it was very different. Obviously, down around sort of Key West was different. Mm-hmm. Miami was different. Then sort of on the mm-hmm. Gulf side was different. Whereabouts are you and what is the differences around Florida? Uh, so uh, we are on the Gulf Coast. And we are about uh, halfway down the peninsula, uh, right on the water there. So, uh, yeah, so we, you, you typically right around the, the um, along the coastline, you'll have people from, you know, all over the United States because they relocate down here. You know, the closer you get to Miami, obviously, you're going to get a, a greater Latin influence. Uh, the farther up you get to the panhandle, you're going to get more of a uh, uh, southern United States vibe, (laughs) right? Uh, So yeah, it's a little bit of a, it's a, a, it's true. It's a melting pot, but the heat is not turned on. So (laughs) we're just just simmering. (laughs) (laughs) We're just sitting in the pot together. (laughs) So do you, uh, around your region and there's not that many uh, sort of Latino Hispanic people, is there? No, there's not that many now. Now there's a few certainly, but not like not like if you go down to Miami, three hours yeah. south. Yeah. I know a guy that was in Miami, Miami, and he was like completely blown away by the fact that like you know, really, <laughs> so like he said it was like being in Cuba or something. He said like oh, it most is. people yeah. just speaking Spanish. He said he had no idea what was going on. 
Yeah, they announce all the flights at the Miami airport in Spanish first and English second. Really? Yeah. 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 Did you know you can't say Latino anymore, seemingly? You can't. That's, yeah. L- Lat- Latinx is what you have to say. So you Latinx. can't say like Latino or Latina. It's like Latinx. Uh, but seemingly the Latin population, you want to call them that, seemingly don't agree with that. Seemingly it's a, it's a, it's a white educated university type thing that they want to enforce. <laughs> Well, in Latin would be, you know, Caesar and Brutus and they spoke Latin. <laughs> yeah. Technically. When I went on, when I started secondary school, uh, high school, I suppose, in America, they just got just got rid of Latin. So it was in the early nineties. Latin had just stopped being taught in school. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if anybody else still learns Latin. Do you know if any Latin any people learn Latin in the world anymore? Uh, just the Vatican. Okay, moving swiftly on. <laughs> That's it, <laughs> right? And there's a reason for that. It's their co- code. It's the code, yeah. <laughs> Remember, I grew up in Ireland, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Brandon, you are obviously from the United States. Where did you grow up originally in America? Uh, so, actually, I grew up in Florida. Spent okay. most of my, uh, and then left here. Um, lived most of my life, though, in California. And, and then moved back to Florida just uh, in 2018. Oh, so a few years back. And what were you doing in California before you came back? So I was uh, doing my consulting business in California, running that yeah. out of there. Then before that, I spent seven years at Stanford University as a director of performance. Oh, very good. So, yeah. Brandon, you have a PhD in the area of sports performance. Um, mm-hmm. How did you get into that? What was your sort of pathway from sort of high school to, to achieving your PhD? What was that? How did that work? Yeah, so... Um, in, in, in university, actually, I, I started studying and I have a, I have a, a, a degree in this in theater design and technology. Theater so design? Like, yeah, like, so, like as so, in set design? Exactly. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Set design, lighting design. Um, and I actually used to freelance uh, doing set design when I was in college to in grad school to pay for extra, to get some extra cash. Okay. So I used to do that remotely and, you know, I'd be in the research lab at the day and then, you know, doing writing papers at night. And then I'd go back to my room and I'd be drafting stuff and AutoCAD and then send it out to the, the theater. And so, yeah, anyway, so changed my major a bunch of times in college uh, in university and ended up in exercise science. And I just loved it. And I was like, these classes are so cool. Like <laughs> really humans and, and this is fascinating. And I had no idea what you could do with it. Um, and I met with my advisor and I said, you know, I really enjoy these classes. I have no idea what you can do with a degree in exercise physiology. And he goes, well, there's two routes. You can go into corporate health and wellness, or you can get into cardiac rehabilitation. And I said, great. Neither of those things sound good. <laughs> and I'm like, there has to be like a door number three somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I ended up falling into like a strength and conditioning type of scenario and just fell in love with it. And uh, as I um, I did that at a place called IMG Academies, which at the time was called Nick Boletary Tennis and Sports Academy in Florida and used to train athletes from 32 different countries, uh, all different sports. And then I left there in, in the late 90s to start a company, co-found a company called Athletes Performance, which is now Exos. Um, oh, yeah, and yeah. yeah, I did that for three, four years and said, you know what, I'm, I need to go back to school. And I left everything behind and, and uh, I felt there was more to performance, more to learn, more to yeah. find out. And that's why I went and got my, my PhD. So 
So you yeah, actually graduated with an undergraduate degree in theatre design and technology, but kind of went off working in exercise physiology. So right? I, well, I have I had a, a minor in theatre design technology. Yeah. Because I because I almost completed that degree, but I got my degree in exercise phys. I got my master's degree in exercise phys, and then my PhD in yeah performance. So. Wow, that's some combination. It's all it's over a, the place, right? I, yeah, look, I thought it was all over the place. That's, that's pretty good. What, what similarities, Brandon, if any, did you find between theater design and exercise physiology? Oh, there's tons. Like, if you're talking about coaching, yeah. you know, coaching is all about entertaining because it's teaching. Coaching yeah, is yeah, teaching yeah. and teaching is entertaining. And um, I think the biggest thing it did for me is it, it opened my eyes up to other things. Right. So I'm not, I, I didn't become so myopic in my field. Like I rely on learning from other things and, and, and yeah, so it was, there's a lot I take from there, you know, took from there. So, uh. Have you read the book uh, by David Epstein called range? Yeah. 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 So we're just talking yeah. about that recently on a podcast. My wife bought it for my birthday last year and I just finished reading it, but we were talking about on a podcast and uh, I actually had it on my desk and I picked up one, this book <laughs> with Danny Lennon. Um, but yeah, pretty interesting. Like he talks about people who, you know, end up becoming experts over time, actually do a lot of different things and yeah. take learnings. And it's interesting too, because he did, he discusses in the book towards the back end of it, basically that, you know, people who have diversity and experience have better problem solving ability and also better collaboration, which is interesting because you would think mm -hmm. that if, you know, someone's an expert, like let's say in the stock market, They'd be very good at finding out different parts of information. But he, he was talking about this experiment. I think it was looking at stocks where it had a group of experts like academics and then had a group of people who had multivariate kind of backgrounds. And the multivariate background people actually were better at predicting the outcomes of the stock exchange over a year than the people who were actually full-time yeah. academics, yeah. sort of experts in the field because they tend to be siloed and not really discuss things with other people. And we probably see this in research ourselves where you go, oh, that guy published a paper? I've known him for three years and I didn't even know he was working on that. And we've spoken yeah. about it. He never told me he was working on that project or to kind of keep it yeah. secret. He'd stay in their lane. Whereas other people tend to, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You can input here, input there. And sort of, like you said, it opens you up. So that, that's quite interesting. Well, and, and I think that's what the theater did. It's like, you know, if you look at like these high performance models that we work in on a daily basis and interact with and consult with, it's like, you know, in a theater, you have a director. And the director oversees everything. And you have a lighting designer and a set designer and a costume designer. And, and, you know, you have stage managers and actors and all these different people. And they are trusted to do their own thing and stay in their lane, but for the greater good of the production. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it's essentially what we do in the high performance, we would like to do in the high performance model. But as you said, it becomes very, you know, um, siloed. And, and people get very, you know, stuck in that. So totally. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Do you uh, miss any aspects of theater design? Do you ever kind of look at it and go, oh, I'd like to work on this or do that? Or Yeah, sometimes it'd be cool to go back and do some things, I think, because you see technology changing. It's like, my gosh, that would have been so cool to be able to, what I could have done with this and what I could yeah, have yeah. done with that and and those types of things. But it was a long time ago, but yeah. And, and from theater set design, when you watch movies or TV shows, which shows do you think are really good at like doing theater, theater design like and backgrounds mm -hmm. and sort of stage design? How, who, who's really good at doing those? 
I tell you, the ones are the ones that don't rely a lot on CGI, right? Like computer graphic yeah, yeah. stuff. Um, or if they rely on a little bit, like the ones that try to go full CGI, it just, be, it just, it, it irritates me. It loses like the richness and the texture. Like it's just see, you know, it seems very bland. That's really interesting that you said that because over Christmas here, um, I rewatched, well, I was <laughs> probably like most of the people. I subscribe to the Disney Channel for one month a year when season two of The Mandalorian is all, all out and then cancel my subscription for 11 months. Um, anyway, so I had it for a month and I ended up watching The Mandalorian season two, but then I rewatched all the Star Wars movies. And so in our sort of era of Star Wars episodes four, five and 60, the original ones, you watch those and you're like, man, that actually still holds up. That still looks good. Then the other ones, episodes one, two and three, that were out in the Awful. late 90s, early 2000s. Oh my God, I couldn't even watch 30 Minutes one. I was like, these are so fake and so shit looking that I can't even follow the story. I can't put that aside because it's CGI to death where it looks like a bad video game. It looks like you're looking at an Atari or Double Dragon from the 80s. And then I jump forward to the new ones that have come out and they actually kind of are more like the old ones. Probably use more like kind of puppets and you know set design and costumes the story then allows you then to kind of put that aside and get more into the story. And I feel like the Mandalorian's a bit like that as well. Whereas those episodes in the middle, absolutely atrocious. So it's exactly what you're saying. When yep. the CGI yep. to death, you can't watch it, I think. Mandalorian's a great example because what they do is they use a combination of set pieces and they have this huge, have you seen it? Like the dome that they work in? No, I haven't seen it. No. So it's an entire, it's a tire like dome. Um, and the entire dome is video. So mm-hmm. like the, the Mandalorian could be in a ship, which is a real set piece, but then the actual space is all video from outside and they can move and change and spin uh-huh. things, which is just like, it's, it's like the perfect combination of, 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 of both worlds. Yeah. It's very cool. The guy that, the, that directs that John Favreau, Favreau. Favreau yeah. he was the guy that did the, um, what's that one he did with, um, Oh, Vince Vaughn himself did back in the 90s. Um, uh, um, I got Wedding Crashers in my head, but it's not Wedding Crashers. It's no, something else. No, no, it's Swingers, no, no, no. is it? Swingers. Yep. Swingers. He yeah. was in that. Yeah. I think like yeah. he only directed like one or two things before he yeah. got into, you know, he was you know, an actor. He was in actually a few episodes of The Sopranos as well. Yeah, he was in Rudy. The movie Rudy. Oh, Rudy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rudy. That's he right. Yeah, that. American football. Those earliest yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talented yeah. guy. He's absolutely awesome at the, at the Mandalorian. Yeah. Like he's just, yeah, you know, it's captured the imagination of most forty-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <Yeah. laughs> and baby, baby Yoda attracts my wife. Oh, look at baby Yoda! <laughs> I'm like, yes, I get to watch Mandalorian. <laughs> my wife She's like, won't go near any of it. But she, well, my wife's like, oh, the rest of it's stupid. That's all stupid. That stuff. But oh, look at baby Yoda. Oh, look at him. Oh. <laughs> and then when his name came out this season, she's like, what? I thought he was baby Yoda. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just watching the rest of it. So, Brandon, you went back, um, you sort of dropped tools, decided to go back and, and do your PhD. Now, in America, it's slightly different, isn't it? You do a master's as part of the PhD program. Is that right? No, you don't have to. Oh, yeah. you don't have so to? So, okay. I actually did my undergrad and master's first and then um, went back and did the PhD. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but so- we do have some different tracks here in the United States. Some people have a terminal PhD program where you start a master's and you actually end up with a PhD. Some, they're all very different. Schools are very different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
because it's, it's a little bit different here in Australia. A lot of people do what's called honours, which is a year after your undergrad. And that's yeah. a kind of a research year. And then you use that then to leapfrog into PhD. And there's a few people like myself who come with masters from maybe different fields. And then you have to kind of get approved to um, to do a PhD. So it's not yeah. traditional or outdated, but yeah. Um, so when you did your PhD, what university did you go to? And what was your f- uh, topic of focus for that? So yeah, I did. Uh, I went to Baylor University, which is in Texas, and um, my dissertation was uh, looked at overtraining. Overtraining. Uh, overtraining. Yeah. 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 Which I don't believe in, and I didn't think existed, and I still don't think it exists. Really. Um, I'm, uh, and people people argue with me on this because I say I say it's under recovery, and they say, well, that's the same thing, isn't it? Just semantics. And I'm like, actually, no. And um, I talk about sleep, you know, something that you and I are very, mm. very passionate about. And it's about, you know, if you have two identical people and they train the both the same volumes, intensities, loads, densities, and frequencies, but one gets, you know, maybe, you know, 40 hours of sleep and the other one gets, you know, cumulatively on, on a week and another one gets like 50 hours, but the one that gets 40, you know, starts to feel miserable, right? And, yeah, and yeah. can, you know, and starts to exhibit overtraining. I prefer maladaptation, right? It's not because that person was training too much. It was because they just weren't recovered enough. Um, so I don't think you can really train too much. I think if your your if your recovery modalities and your recovery isn't prescribed correctly, then I think you can have a poor adaptation to training. But that's a very interesting, yeah, yeah I'm just kind of working shot in my head. That's that's really interesting. So when you looked at this, in mm-hmm. what specific populations did you look at, at this as a topic? We, it was I uh, used one of our athletic teams in at Baylor, yeah. So I measured them across the season, looked at psychological variables, looked at physiological variables, yeah. blood work, hormone levels, uh, you name it, yeah. And what's what sport was that, Brandon? Softball. Softball. Yeah. Softball so is like, so like I, I yeah, I had to control for like menstrual cycles and things of that nature too. So. Oh, females as well. Yep. Wow. Um. Yeah, it made it very difficult. <laughs> Yeah, that would be that would be hard. Yeah. Um, so when when you talk about overtraining, what what's the classical definition of overtraining? How how would people define overtraining? Well, people would look at overtraining and they would say it's that it uh, um, it is a result of too much volume, loads, intensities, densities, frequencies, right? And then there's a number of signs and symptoms that people could exhibit, right? And there's two different distinct types. And the symptoms are very opposite. Some people might have a high heart rate. Some people might have a low heart rate. Some people may have trouble sleeping. Some people might not have trouble sleeping, mm-hmm. right? But there's these two different distinct types of avenues they could go when they overtrain. Um, and, and again, I think it's just they are not recovering correctly. Um, so they are not adapting to the, the, the training stimulus, right? Um, the response to the stimulus is, is, is an adverse one instead of a positive one. And do you think, Brandon, that's mainly driven from people just not allowing time for recovery, such as like we say, like sleep or massage or just rest time off legs? Because I, I think like, and the reason I'm asking this, probably not so much in professional athletes, but amateur particularly, or, you know, we'll look at the classic middle, middle class, you know, person, middle of the road professional between 30 and 50, two kids, works like 40 to 60 hours a week, depending on what's going on. Um, you know, the, the, that person and their partner and is working like whether it's male or female, but, you know, two, two income family type of thing, trying to balance that. 
then plus they want to go out on a Friday night, have a few drinks, then maybe have someone around for like a dinner party on a Saturday night. And they're getting like four or five hours sleep because when I get up at six o'clock in the morning and do like a hundred K bike ride and then they go, oh man, I just can't, I just always overtraining. And I always go, well, look at your kind of, you know, your weekly cycle and the, and the opportunity for recovery, for sleep and for just time on rest and different, different activities. Is that kind of what you're talking about as well, where people just don't allow that time for recovery and therefore it gets presented as I'm overtraining? Exactly. Because I, my point is that, you know, they would be able to handle that load of that, that, that ride if they had adequate recovery in place, right? If they yeah. had got the decent sleep, if they had gotten the, you know, if they're hydrated or proper nutrition or those things, right? Um, then they would be able to handle those loads. So the, the reason they couldn't handle loads wasn't because there was too much of a load. It was because they didn't have, they didn't set them up set set themselves up to handle the load so to speak so this is really interesting running because in my kind of mind's eye i'm visualizing this where a lot of people kind of go right i want to run i don't know a marathon right got six months to do it i need to run x amount of kilometers this week y amount of kilometers this week z amount of kilometers this week and then i go into the next phase like when we talk about kind of meso cycles of training um and little micro cycles where you know meso and micro cycles of training and that's what they want to do Whereas in actual fact, we should probably look at it the opposite way and go, actually, how much time available do I have for recovery? Yep. Plus, what do I need for work, family, and so on? Yep. What's the time left? And then there, therefore then change my training program. So and I might actually, after I do that reverse calculation, go, ah, I'm not going to be able to train for a marathon in six months, but it might take me eight months to do it. 100%. Yep. And because, and you hit it on the head, there's like um, four domains of to really optimize performance. You have to optimize the physical, the cognitive, the social, and the emotional. Yeah, yeah. And you see it all the time, like in pro athletes, right? They, they go with their sport all the time. And it's like, why do they go out late and hang out with friends? Because they haven't filled that social bucket, right? Yeah, They've been yeah. so focused in the physical domain. Um, and you have to kind of, you have to balance all of them. So sometimes recovery could be spending the day with your family or could be going out with friends and having some wine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or it could be getting eight hours of sleep, right? It depends on each individual person. So yeah, exactly. Look at the time allocation you have, what you, what buckets you need to fill and then build your way out. Yeah. So when we talk about bearing, bearing that in mind, when we mm -hmm. using that kind of model and talking about overtraining in regards to that, is there any differences in overtraining as people age in different brackets, like from 18 to 25, 25 to 30, 30 to 35? And the reason I ask this question is that loads of people always bang on my head about, you train too much, you exercise too much. And I go, ladies and gentlemen, I feel great. I feel fantastic. I don't feel tired. I rarely get sick. It's good for my mental health. I enjoy mm -hmm. doing it. My wife definitely enjoys when I do it because I'm not such a bastard, right? So I feel like I feel great overall. I enjoy doing it. Like it's just yeah. people are like, oh, you need to slow down. You're getting older, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, man, I'm not that old. I'm 42, not 102. Right, and right, right. to be honest, when I'm 102, I want to be doing the same thing. Right. So that's why I'm asking that question about, you know, how do we deal with that as we age? Or is that a misnomer? Please let it be a misnomer. Please let it be a misnomer. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I, I think this is the thing, right? It's like there's so many unknowns about this because, I mean, lo look at most of the research, right? Like the, you, you, they, they compartmentalize you in these lines of best fit, right? You know this. 
and you could be an outlier, right? Um, maybe you're not. Maybe we just we are so undertrained as a population, right? That yeah. that what the average is and what average people feel um, is actually not average. It could be below average. Uh, so there's a lot of unknowns there, and I think that's where the individuality comes in. And if if you don't have any adverse feeling, you feel great. Um, yeah, go with it. Yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Go with it. I think too many people get hung up on you know like aura rings and you know Fitbits and whoop straps and go oh my recovery. And I know we've spoken about this before in in different yeah. forums, but yeah, in different forums, but people are like oh my recovery, I haven't adequately re- recovered, and I often said to people like like how do you feel? Oh, I felt really great, but you know like this this thing said you know it was like five out of ten, or I didn't get enough REM sleep last night, and this comes back to what we were speaking about before the podcast about scientific <laughs> evidence and, and education, and I feel sorry for people because there's so much shit out there, but it's like. I think sometimes, and Andy Galpin has wrote about this in a book, in a book that he's written called Unplugged with Brian McKenzie. I think sometimes you just have to stop and go, right, how do I feel today? You know, how can I change? Like yesterday, for example, I was pretty tired. I had a bit of a kind of a, I spent some time in a, an advanced dementia care unit yesterday. And it was quite emotionally draining for me to see that, right? As a young person. And it was quite, it took me a few hours to sort of reset myself afterwards. I was a little bit tired. I trained a lot the day before. I thought, right, I need to do something today. I need to clear my head because if I go to sleep like this tonight, I'm going to feel like shit. So I thought, okay, my plan says run 10Ks, but I'm just going to run six. And I'm just going to take my time. I'm not going to worry about anything else. So I went on, went on kind of how I felt. You know, it was pretty warm and so on. So I think it's sometimes about having that, I suppose, knowing your body and knowing who you are about where you can pull back and push on Wednesday days to, to go as opposed to being reliant on an external device. I find it really interesting that people take so much cues from an electronic device, but the minute somebody tells them to do something at work or the government says something, they want to react in a negative way and not do it, but they listen to a device, you know, strapped to their wrist. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Yeah. And it's funny because people, you know, they, they, they use these devices to, as a way of to somebody to give them answers, not guide their decisions. And I think that's a big problem too. Right. It's like, uh, you know, like you said, like the, this whoop strap is telling me, you know, I need to get seven hours and 26 minutes of sleep tonight. Mm. Right. Instead of, instead of just saying, okay, it says I'm a little tired. Maybe I should build on an app. Maybe I should do this. Maybe whoop's really a piece of shit and I shouldn't even think of anything. It says, right. It's a random number generator, right? Maybe. <laughs> Media's performance is not endorsed the comments of Brandon Marcello. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, we do agree with the fact that it's a lot of shit. It's hard to know. Like it's, isn't it? It's like, it's hard because a lot of these algorithms are proprietary. We don't know what's behind them. They're inferring things about different things. We've spoken about this in the podcast before, like REM sleep. It's an inference of an inference. Like we just, we don't know. And it's gospel yeah. then. But it's funny, isn't yep. it, how people go, well, that's what's happening. But then they'll argue about the scientific method and get, go, it's all an opinion, but they'll believe the watch. <laughs> right. But that's the thing. It's like people think because the technology is out of the market that it must be valid and reliable. Like, oh, well, they wouldn't put something out that doesn't work, would they? Well, actually, yes, they, they do. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Right. And I think that's the thing. It's just people, you know, it's like, a lot of these technology companies are really marketing companies. They're not technology companies. They're, they're definitely just, not medical companies anyway. We'll say that. Yeah, they're not they're, medical they're, companies they're, either. Yeah, 
Yeah, they're yeah. definitely not that. And people have this idea that, but how can they put out a device and say, measure sleep and recovery? And this is really good. And they can like diagnose like sleep apnea and tell you when you're going to get COVID. I'm like, it's... <laughs> It's complete horseshit. If you look at the approvals that they have, some do and some don't have, you know, the food, drug and um, the FDA approval, whatever it was, a food and drug yeah. administration in America. Some do, some don't, but that doesn't mean anything either. And lots of them, when they do have approval, are for act- measures of a physical activity when you look at the wording in it. So it's like, come on, guys. Yeah, they're pretty bad. Yeah, But yeah, exactly. So we rely too much, I think, on those pieces. And But I think some people aren't, aren't in tune to their bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Other people are. Um, and I think there's just like, we all have different personalities. We all have different proclivities. Some people are better at following their bodies and other people are not because they've done it longer. Yeah. So, yeah. so Brendan, when we're talking about like, um, you know, overtraining or optimization of performance, is there a kind of a, a guidance or a magic number where people should progress their training over time? Use that example again, if they're training for a marathon over six months, should people look to increase the training load whilst the counter action of that is ensuring enough time for recovery. Um, should they, you know, should they increase it by a certain amount every week? Should they try to, I don't know, hit like a certain number and keep it the same for the whole six months? How should people look at that so they don't feel like they're burning out straight away? Yeah, I look at it from a standpoint of just, and this not going to give you a direct answer here, but it's like it's stimulus and response. What is your desired response that you want your body to have. Yeah. And if you're not getting that response, you need to reevaluate the stimulus that your, that your body's getting. If it's, if I want to get, you know, faster and my body, I'm not getting faster with my training. I need to look at that stimulus. Why am I not getting faster? Right. And then I can start looking at all my variables volumes, intensities, load, densities, frequencies, sleep, nutrition, recovery, you know, stress at work, unhealthy stress, good stress, right? All these different things. It's a lot, right? I mean, I just did a, um, I didn't just do this. This was like maybe three years ago. You know, I did a project for our, for our military here in the United States. And they're like, we need to build a framework for assessing human performance. And you saw it, right? All those different elements mm-hmm. look like a flight map. Yeah, yeah. There's so many elements that contribute to performance, like, Picking one, you know, is just it doesn't move, doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, it's 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 a, it's a lot, and like we talked about earlier, everybody wants that one answer, yeah, right? Yeah. They want that one answer. Like, don't have it. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting too because when you look at different people, people people need different external stimulus as well. Yep. So some yeah. people like to be screamed at when they're exercising. You know, <laughs> like to be roared and shouted at. You can roar and shout at me. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, right? It's not going to make an effect on me. And maybe that's from a, you know, years of growing up in rugby training and then being in the military. Maybe you just kind of learn to just switch off to and just, you know, do the job and do the task and get your head down, not worry about what people are saying. Other people love that. Like I see people doing personal training in the park and some trainer is like screaming at them or roaring at them. I'm like, I don't want to pay $100 for that. For that. I can right. scream or roar myself inside my own head, right? <laughs> you know? Or I'm quite capable of putting on like an A's play mix and listening to Foreigner and going running for two or three hours. Yeah. So I think it's I think it depends on like you said again, the what you're trying to achieve, but also those inputs and what you like and what you don't like, mm-hmm. and then how it how it's making you feel as well. Because I think a lot of people are out there going, you know, training for Ironmans or training for jiu-jitsu competitions or long distance runs or whatever, and they're acting like they're going to be world champions. It's like mm-hmm. from the perspective, guys. 
You're 45 years of age. Mm-hmm. What little go? Like, you're not going to be world champ. <laughs> I know you want to right. do good and it's admirable, but put it into perspective, you know? Right. Yeah. You got to sort of, balance these things, you know? So, Bram, I've often heard before that um, people should increase trend load by 10% week on week. And a um, bit like what they do with weights, that gradual sort of, you know, nearly like the Japanese term Kaizen, small incremental improvements, mm-hmm. build it up and hit a, hit a sort of a stride. Is that, is that something that actually holds any, any merit or weight or should, should we look at that? I mean, it, it's a starting point if you want to look at that. Yeah. Um, and then you could, you know, it's just like anything, whether it's, whether it's, you know, volumes or loads or even like heart rate, right? Um, there's a plus or minus five in there, right? So yeah, 10%, I increased 10%, my performance didn't improve, right? Or I yeah. increased it 10%. I started feeling like crap. Maybe I needed to increase it by 8%, right? Um, so there, I don't think there are absolutes. I think there are absolute guidelines, but I think those now have to come with a range. So say 10% mm. plus or minus four, again, made up another number there and, and, and judge accordingly. Some weeks you might be able to increase it by 12. Other weeks you might be only be able to increase it by eight. So this, so. Is where, this is where you're kind of using like nearly... Six Sigma engineering, Six Sigma problem solving and engineering. You want nearly like a control chart. You want these yeah. like, you know, min and max levels and you want to try and keep within that variability, give yourself some wiggle room. People might do this with calories as well, doing zigzag calorie restriction. You want that sort of, and you want to hit that zone of, let's say, caloric intake, heart rate, heart rate variability, training load, speeds. It's quite quite a lot to look at. Um, it is a lot. It is, but I, but I actually think that intuitively, if you know your body and you're in tune with it, you've got to probably manage these things pretty well anyway by listening to your body and understanding how you how you move and how you, you know, how you get around. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it can be quite quite daunting for somebody. However, is there benefit, Brandon, in training from a psychological perspective when you do feel like shit? So when your heart rate is all over the place, when you're feeling tired, it's too hot, it's too cold, you don't feel great, you know. Is that is there is there any benefit in going without without making yourself sick or injuring yourself? Obviously, is there benefit in going right? This is the day where I got to push a little bit more. Absolutely, hundred percent. Right. I mean, yeah. as humans, we 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 ha- we limit ourselves as humans. Right. We can do some pretty amazing stuff physically. Hmm. Um, we see it all the time. Right. Um, but we reserve it for like the elite. We all mostly possess it. The question is, can we tap into it? are we willing to feel miserable? Right. And I mean, that's what like the elite people push themselves. Yeah. But if you're going out and you just need to push yourself a little bit harder and, and, and just do it, that's what you do. And I don't think there's any harm in that at all. And usually, you know, and, and this happens to me too, like I'm getting ready to go on my run and I got 5k very light day and I don't feel like doing it. Mm. My wife says, you're going to feel better after you go. Yeah, yeah. And I come back feel amazing. Right. I'm like, you're right. I just did, you know, and you had to push yourself a little bit and, um, yeah, nothing wrong with that. I think it's a good thing. Like David, you know, David Goggins. Yeah. So David Goggins, right. I think he's a fucking lunatic. There's not two ways about it. I, I think, you know, to use the term overtrain. Yeah. But you know what? He's got the, he's got the life where he can spend all the time recovering. Yeah. He's not doing 50 other different things. His life is different than mine. I think it's great. I love the way he uses like the hair for motivation. I love that. Cause I love, taking hate and and fear and bullshit and using that as fuel and and negativity i love that right but i also love the way he says you know sometimes i spent an hour looking at my motherfucking shoes 
that was the hardest part of today. Like he struggles, <laughs> a guy that's highly motivated to put his shoes on and get out the door. And I often say the same thing. People go, what's the hardest part of doing a swim or what's the hardest part of doing a run? I'm like the first stroke or the first foot or like sometimes when I go to jiu-jitsu, like I feel like shit driving there and I'm sometimes I'm slightly afraid. I'm like, because you're going in there to grapple with another man. It's like, but that's good. I think that fear and that negativity is good sometimes where it makes you push that a little bit extra and, and then you come out, not only feeling good from the exercise, but feeling good that you overcame your, your insecurities as well. You know? Yep. And that's that, that, that that's that cognitive, physical, social, and emotional, right? That's, yeah. they're all connected. Yeah. So you, you do get a boost in performance. And to be honest with you, Brandon, I probably wouldn't have quit my job and went back and did a PhD if I hadn't run long distances in my life. Mm. I, I, I've said that many times because I, I've mm. seen what I've, I've been able to do from a physical standpoint in, in the military or running 100 k's or running 100 miles. And I was like, if I can do that or I can get the shit kicked out of me at jiu-jitsu, I can do this. Because so, at least I'm working at least I'm working on a PhD. No one's going to be hitting me or trying to choke me or no one's making me run every day. Right. You know, it's under my own steam. And I actually found it quite enjoyable. Obviously, I was in a good place in my life as well. I had a bit of experience. I was, what, 30... 36 when I went back to do it. So it's, you're obviously a bit more mature. Um, yeah. Well, plus or minus <laughs> for that one. So I think like it, there's benefits to how exercise can, can, you know, affect your, like you said, a cognitive and social aspects as well. Yeah. What, what would be some of the negative things you would have may have seen from people overtraining? Like we talk about chronic fatigue syndrome, people getting burnt out. Um, have you seen some extreme cases of that? And then what would be some of the warning markers that we might be able to see and maybe be able to um, identify before we get to that stage where we just get completely jaded of a sport? Yeah, well, typically, you know, you know, I'll see that these types of maladaptation syndromes, they typically occur like you, you, they manifest psychologically first, right? Performance-wise, if, if we see it in our performance, it's usually been around for a while. So performance is going to be the last place you're going to see it psychologically, you're going to see it. Physiologically, you might be able to pick it up as well, right? But that's by being invasive and looking at different markers, typically in the blood and things like that. Um, but, you know, if you have trouble um, relaxing, if you have trouble responding to like meditative techniques, um, if you have multiple sleep disturbances, like over a long period of time, um, elevated heart rate, for a long period of time, um, those types of things where, you know, if you follow your trends, if something is, is certainly out of whack and you don't feel well, you feel like something's rotten in Denmark, right? I mean, like something mm -hmm. probably is heading that direction. Um, and sometimes people think they need to push through that and continue to push through that and getting, as we spoke about earlier, there is something that's beneficial about pushing through it. But when you, when you do that in an adverse physiological state, then that's something different right? Um, overcoming a psychological state of just discomfort is one thing, but when you're trying to overcome a negative physiological state, that's another thing. And that's when it can be a little bit dangerous, right? Um, and then, like you said, you can, you can achieve burnout, but that burnout is typically because you're not filling your other buckets, the social, emotional, and cognitive. You're filling all physical and doing physical all the time, and you become addicted to the physical side. Mm -hmm. You're pushing yourself in the physical realm, and you, you, you're focused on outcomes in the physical realm, and you ignore the other three domains, which are equally as important. That's that's um, that's really interesting. I'm sitting here nodding my head because I had the same thing with running after running for like eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. My performance wasn't being affected. In actual fact, I was like finishing 
in some like in a 50k race inside the top 10%, 100k race inside the top 15% in mountain races. It's doing quite well, but I was completely pissed off. I was just burnt out. I was sick of training in the heat. I was sick of training over the summer. I was sick of doing the same thing. Sick of doing the same race. Sick of like doing the same over and over again. Just became groundhog there. And uh, it was my wife suggested me to like try swimming because I was really bad at swimming. I couldn't swim like you know two k's in the ocean without nearly drowning. And the first time I went swimming, the first time I went swimming, I swam 800 meters and nearly collapsed in the change room. It was the first time ever to do a squad training session, you know. Huh. And I think for me, it's that it's just as much about the cognitive challenge as it is about the physical as well. I need to to use your term there about filling all those buckets. Huh. And I think that's what you know, that's what keeps me engaged. And I know other people are like that as well. I got a friend as well who's a very good swimmer. We just swam to an island here before Christmas. Got some 20 k's off the coast, and he used to do triathlons. And he's gonna, he's kind of doing the same as me now. He's swimming during the summer and running during the winter. And he stopped doing triathlons, got rid of the bike. Yeah, I think he, I think he had her solar. It said it was up for sale. Same thing as well, though. He just likes that different challenge. And he was getting stale doing triathlons. He was tired. He was bored. He wasn't able to spend time with his kids. And he finds like just kind of splitting the year in half and concentrating on one sport was actually better for him and it freed him up to do some other things. But also as well, he's got different challenges now to work on. Um, so he feels motivated all year round. I think that's really important as well. You don't have to, you know, play soccer till you're a hundred if you don't like it, or you know, you can change sports or do different things to to keep yourself engaged. So you don't have to stay just constantly repeating the same thing over and over again. Another guy here actually on the same subject, Nevin, um, a guy I trained jiu-jitsu, a pretty big guy, he used to play rugby. Um, and he has a strongman gym here here in Western Australia. He's got a master's in exercise science i think he did it under a guy you'd know greg half at ecu yeah yeah, yeah. county university they've got a master's yeah. strength conditioning program there anyway so nevin but nevin last year during the lockdown um period here in australia went okay i'm really shit at running and trained himself to run a marathon and went out then and just ran 42ks on his own lost a ton nice. of weight obviously to do it but that kind of yeah. same thing i want to go from one extreme to the other like you, Brandon, going from theater design to exercise physiology. I think when we go from these extremes of things, sometimes we learn lots about ourselves and lots about our bodies, lots about our mind, our physical abilities, and it makes kind of better people. Have you have you seen that in 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 other athletes where they do diverse range of things and actually makes them a better rounded person? Oh yeah, absolutely. You see it all the time. Or they might completely alter the way they train. Yeah. Right. And typically they, they figure this out later on in their career when they're trying to extend their career. Right. They don't yeah, usually yeah. find it early on unless they were somebody who was really like um, specialized in a couple of different sports and maybe had a choice to play two different, you know, professional sports. Mm. Um, but, yeah, they, they completely change the way they do things. They completely attack things differently to put them in a better position to optimize their performance. So, yeah, totally. It's a range. It's a range again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. And um, what's your thoughts on Brandon as, as athletes get older, male and female, um, about, you know, sort of the, the, I suppose the guidance around socializing, alcohol, caffeine, recreational drugs, legal drugs, whatever it might be. Obviously now that marijuana is legal in a lot of places, mm-hmm. particularly in America, but what, what's your guidance on athletes as they get older, managing those type of things and weight and so on? Because the, the, I see a lot of those things kind of getting thrown by the wayside and people still think in their mind that they're 16, particularly men, think that they're still 16 years of age and they can just exercise their way out of uh, unhealthy habits. What, what sort of advice yeah. do you give to people like that? Well, I think they, I think they, they I think some, some have the ability to get away with it. 
those are the outliers, right? That's the person that smoked three packs a day till the, you know, since they were 13 years old and lived to be 102, yeah. right? That's not going to be everybody. So, you know, I've seen it where the, the athlete, the, the pro athlete comes in and says, I had the, I, you know, I was hung over and I had the best game of my life, right? That's not, that's a one-off, right? That's yeah. luck. That's not, that's not sustainable high performance, right? That's, that's one high performance outcome. Um, but yeah, the ones that you have to throw those to the side, right? You have to limit those. And you still have to fill the social bucket. You still have to go out with friends and you, and you know, if, if you do drink, sure, have a drink here, have a drink there, but it's going to impact you a little bit differently, right? hundred percent. So you have to start managing those things. And that's what you see in the older athlete, right? The ones that say, I want to play five more years. I'll do anything you tell me. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then you start with sleep and they're like, yes, I will do that. I used to never sleep, right? I'll do whatever I need to do. Yeah, yeah. Nutrition. Yeah. I used to go eat McDonald's, right? I won't touch it. I'll hire a chef and I'll bring in whatever, yeah. right? They will tweak every aspect and fine tune every aspect of those things that they didn't do. And what they realize is they're training less. They're putting less mileage on their bodies yeah, and they're performing at a decent level because they've changed all the other pieces of the environment. Yeah. 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 It is amazing. Like when you start changing some of those things, how better you feel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And they always say, you know, by the time the body, by the time the mind figures it out, it's too late for the body. There's some truth to that. Right. And then in recent years, we see lots of stuff online about meditation, headspace, relaxation yeah. techniques, whatever it might yeah. be yoga kicking off as well. And look, all these things come with a bit of spiritual bullshit as well. And charlatans, but um, how do you think they may help people in the balance of overtraining? Because there's very little out there on these type of, you know, novel techniques that people are using, obviously been around for many years in, in sort of Eastern society, if you want to call it that. In the Asian countries, we've seen lots of meditation, yoga happening, but very new to the West and becoming very popular and people swearing by them. How do you think that may help or hinder people? I think it, I think it frees up bandwidth in our nervous system. Right. So I think, you know, if you look at really what, you know, traditional Chinese medicine and yin and yang, right. Or what pranayama was trying to do mm -hmm. in, in, in breathing and practices in ancient India, um, you know, all they were trying to do was achieve balance in the autonomic nervous system. That's what yin and yang yeah, is, yeah, right. Yeah. Sympathetic and, and parasympathetic. Yeah. That's all they're trying to do. And, you know, that's what Buddhist monks are trying to do. Prayer and spirituality pushes you parasympathetically. Um, you know, chanting pushes you parasympathetically, all these ancient techniques, shamanism, right? They used to dance and dance and dance until they dropped. So they would, ex they would just exude every bit of, of, act, uh, of physical exertion they could until hmm. they became 100% parasympathetic and dropped, right? And I think what's happening here in the West is that people are seeing the negative effects of getting stuck on the sympathetic side of the nervous system. And when we get stuck there and we can't bring our nervous system back into balance, then we see some pretty nasty health consequences, um, inability to sleep. We see high blood pressure. We see anxiety. We see uh, irregular heartbeats. We see esophageal reflux, you know, you name the malady, and typically it is a result of some, you know, cold hands in a warm room, right? Those are all imbalances in the autonomic nervous system. So I think what happens is these mindfulness techniques, headspace, 
calm, mm. um, all these things, the yoga, even though what we do here in the States isn't really true yoga, right? Um, it's a bastardized version of yoga. Um, but at the end of the day, what it does, it gets people to, you know, stay focused in the present, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and forget about things. Like if you talk to any late night television host, and they say, what's your, what do you do for a living? They say, it's my job to get people to think about, to forget about their problems for one hour, right? It's to yeah, yeah. divert their attention and focus on the present and free up the bandwidth of the nervous system to allow people to put themselves in a better state of relaxation. Yeah. But like a comedian. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. what, but that's what hobbies do. Right. I mean, yeah, people, yeah. people have, without knowing why that's essentially what they're doing. Right. And I think that's what these meditative aspects do. There's some other benefits, right. Of getting people to read themselves better, right. Pay attention to their bodies better, but you know, at the root of it, that's what we're trying to do. Hmm. How to, how to get that nervous system back into a better balance. Brandon, you mentioned two terms there, parasympathetic and sympathetic. How would you describe those for people who may not have heard those terms before (laughs) or have heard them and don't actually know what to mean? Yeah. So, so there's, there's the autonomic nervous system in our human body and that's just runs automatically, right? It's just everything that runs behind the scenes, our heartbeat, breathing, digestion, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's two divisions of that nervous system, the sympathetic, which is the, they also call it the fight or flight, which if somebody was just to jump out from behind you and scare you, right? Your heart rate increases, your blood pressure increases, your pupils dilate. Um, some people piss themselves, right? Whenever, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, there is a, um, it puts you in a position to either run or fight uh, because it's there for your survival. It's like our lizard brain or a million brain, right? It tells us that there's some sort of danger. Um, so our body goes through this whole cascade of physiological responses to now put us in a position to survive that danger. Mm. Parasympathetic is the completely opposite. Some people call it the rest and digest. Some people call it the, you know, the read and breed type of just relaxing yeah, type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so it's when you're calm and your, you know, your heart rate is lower and you know, your digestion's happening uh, at an ideal rate. Um, uh, you're just in a very relaxed state. So that's the difference between the two. And we should achieve balance yeah. for whatever reason, because of, you know, being connected all the time on, you know, Zooms or phones or, you know, lighting, or you live in cities and noise, things like that. We seem to kind of get just a little bit out of balance and we have a hard time getting back into that mm. balance between the two. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Excellent. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Brandon, um, I know you do a lot of stuff with the military, so um, yeah. you've got lots of state secrets there. But uh, before you go, any interesting types of uh, projects you, you're currently working on or will be working on in, in the future that you might be able to give us a little bit of info on what you're, what you're looking at or what questions? I tell you, one of the things we're looking at now, um, uh, one of our projects with the military is we're actually looking at all of that, that these multiple domains and how they connect. So, you know, we're looking at like a, for instance, like a marksmanship study. So we're looking at expert marksmanship and novice marksmen, and we're putting them through a, a stress shoot. So mm-hmm. it's going to be physical, but it's also going to be cognitive stress as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we want to see how they respond. So we're looking at a lot of different measures, a lot of different metrics. Um, we're not just focusing on one area. We're looking at a lot of different things. And 
you know, we're going to tie in sleep and we're going to tie in a lot of these other things that they're doing and look at that weeks in advance before the stress shoot. So to see how, what kind of like lifestyle and pattern behaviors up to that point. So instead of just capturing it in that one session, we're going to look at lifestyle stuff on either side of it on the bookends and look at nutrition and all these other things and stress management, lifestyle management, social, cognitive, physical, emotional, all these different things to kind of give us a better understanding of like, okay, what, what's the next question we want to ask? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's really, that's, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, yeah, yeah, that's cool. when I joined the army, I was a terrible shot. Like, you know, nervous with the weapon, taste of carbon in my mouth, ended up then going on the general purpose machine gun shooting team then a few years later because I just got used to it and just over time and learned breathing techniques and not that I was any phenom on it but probably got put on there for something to do but anyway it's just it is interesting like over time <laughs> how you know all those things will would would affect it so mm -hmm. interested to see that yeah because there's yeah, loads of variables there that affect um, shooting accuracy caffeine sleep yes. there's been some interesting studies done that by people like Gary Kamamori sleep deprivation yeah. sleep restriction Oh. I'm to react, you know, it's all, that's very, very interesting and very pertinent as well, because, um, you know, in a, in an operational setting, it's not just about saving your life, it's about saving your mate's life beside you as well. So there is like, there is a kind of a battle objective or rationale for, for doing that type of work. So 100%. Quite, quite interesting. Yeah. Right. Brandon, you're also available though to do consultancy for, um, the general peasants of the world like myself um <laughs> you don't just work with military you work with lots of different people and you know you're you're quite active in, in areas of like kind of research and stuff so um how can people get in contact with you and more importantly what is the kind of services you do offer through your consultancy yeah so service wise i do a lot of different things i work military I work with pro sport i work with athletes i work with organizations businesses right? People who are just high performers. Yeah. Um, anybody that needs to solve a human performance problem, that's what I do. Um, so, you know, it could be anything from helping people find the right people to be a part of their team yep. to coming in to see what they do well and what they don't do well um, to providing specific solutions and countermeasures for what they do, right? It could be anything and anything that's related to human performance. Yep. Um, and then how they get a hold of me, have a website, brandonmarcellophd.com. Get a hold of me through there. It's quite simple. And then, yeah. Excellent. And do you have any yeah. university links as well, Brandon? Do you, are, you, are you active in that sort of field as well? Do you working with any researchers or PhD students? Or uh, you no, not with any PhD students at the moment. Uh, okay. But there's some of talking to some people that might be some potential down the road. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Brandon, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, that was that was a very interesting conversation. As always, I learned lots about the guests and <laughs> stimulates me actually in, in thinking about some different different things and different approaches um, for some of my upcoming projects and research. So really appreciate that. No. And um, yeah, I uh, I think by the time this is released, you should have either the same present or a new present. We'll, uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> oh, let's talk a new one, please. <laughs> yeah, please. It'll be the rock. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson, 2024. Thanks, Brendan. Dreams make his boy gonna make it. Stand tall, there's a higher road to take it. Let go of everything that you know and be wild in the misery. I've been in the darkness for 40 days. 
Can you help me out? 